Hey, what up, everyone? My name is Christopher Rivas, and this is Brown Enough, stories between black and white. This episode is coming out right before Thanksgiving, so I want to take a sec to acknowledge that this day is a complicated one. I like to use it as a time for reflection, gratitude, and hopefully and ideally spending time with loved ones. And for me, if I'm lucky and blessed enough, that happens around a table full of food. But as we all know, this holiday carries a legacy of colonialism, and I think that that is important to acknowledge as well. So I am very excited to bring you this conversation today. It is all about food and the ways that quote-unquote American food has been richly inspired and influenced by cultures all around the world. I hope this episode gives you something to feel grateful for and maybe even something to talk about around the table. I thank you for listening, and now on with the show. Growing up, my mom did a lot of cooking. To this day, whenever I'm headed back home, my mom will always ask me, what can I make for you? I think making food for our family is sort of a creative outlet for her. She loves to nourish us. My mom is Colombian. And whenever I tell people how great of a cook she was, they'd be like, ooh, she cooked Colombian food? Yep, she do. But she also cooks a lot of other stuff too. Like mostly other stuff. My favorite is this Spanish dish called favada soup with a chorizo and white beans. It's super yum. My mom always says that she likes to go out to eat and then try to recreate what she had at the restaurant at home. Me too, actually. And I think that's American cooking, right? That blend, that melting pot of so many different kinds of cultures and cuisines, usually prepared by women whose labor isn't necessarily recognized. My guest today is a food writer who has thought a lot about all this stuff. Well, except for the actual cooking part. You'd think that after five years of you know being like, yeah, I'm a food writer or whatever, that you know I started to cook a lot, but I'm not Ina Garten or anything like that in the kitchen, you know? This is Mayuk Sen, amateur in the kitchen and author of the book, Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America. The book profiles women from diverse countries and cultures who all made their way to America. Then, they helped America not just taste, but elevate and embrace new cuisines. I did have to cook some recipes that these seven women created just because I wanted to kind of get a better sense of their creative souls. But I am still someone who burns his uh, dinner once a week, you know. I'm still that guy, and that's okay. I own that. Good thing this ain't a cooking show. Today, Mayuk Sen and I chat about how a guy who doesn't like to cook found his way into the food world. The very special woman that Mayuk's been inspired by from day one. And of course some of his tastemakers. Here we go. Tastemakers, seven immigrant women who revolutionized food in America. How'd you get the idea to write this book? Yeah, well, it came to me uh, around 2017 or so. So uh, back then, I was a kind of novice food writer. I was 25 years old, and 
I was a staff writer at a website called Food 52. And when I was there, I was writing a lot of stories on uh, figures in the food world who came from marginalized communities. These are usually people of color, women of color, immigrants, immigrants of color, queer people, you know, uh, all those permutations, basically, who had not necessarily been given their due. And I wanted to tell their stories uh, with as much sensitivity as possible. And I was attracted to those stories because... I am a queer POC, you know, in America and in the food world. And uh, as a result, uh, in my early days as a food writer, I felt very alone. You know, I was writing from a very different center of gravity than that of uh, my peers. And so to kind of feel less alone, I really started to tell these stories to understand how do I navigate an industry that can so often feel so exclusionary. You said you were left out of your peers. And did you mean... There's multiple questions in here. Like, is the food writing world still primarily run by old white men? That's my assumption when you yeah. said that. Like, in, or did you, so did you mean in the writing world about food or did you mean in the food world or are they one? Yeah, you know, I kind of saw them as one, but, you know, I can only speak from my own experience. Uh, but yeah, I would say, you know, when I looked around me in those early days of being a food writer or whatever, back in 2016, 2017, most of my peers were white. Most of the people uh, who had power back then were white folks, not necessarily just men, you know, a lot of white women too. And some of these people are so lovely. <laughs> and they taught me a lot, you know, some of the best examples of the genre for sure. But their food memories and their food experiences were so different from my own as someone who grew up in a Bengali immigrant household uh, back in suburban New Jersey. And I didn't know that there was quite a place for whatever narratives I wanted to tell uh, within this broader canvas of food writing. So it was kind of a struggle in that regard, certainly. Mayuk says when he was first starting out, he made a point of pitching stories about people who looked like him and things he wanted to learn about. He wrote an essay about how fruitcake became a slur. He profiled a woman who opened a Cambodian restaurant in Oakland. He wrote about Indian cooks and cooking. So as I was writing a lot of those stories, uh, I had a friend of mine just look at that budding body of work. And he was like, oh, you know, I wonder if there is a larger project simmering in here. You know, one that stitches together these stories and tells a larger narrative about immigration and food in America. And I was like, I don't know, man, I am 25 years old. I am way too young to take on a book project right now. You know, I'm just stupid. It's going to be a bad book. So I just kind of put it in my back pocket. Uh, fast forward one year later when I'm 26 years old, you know, all of a sudden I feel so much wiser, right? I decided to pick that idea back up uh, because I'd noticed over the course of that year just so many conversations within the American food media that were along the lines of immigrants get the job done and immigrants feed America. And those talking points were probably well-intentioned, yet I felt sort of unsettled when I saw all those talking points being bandied about because, to me, they seemed to uh, inadvertently reinforce this idea that the value of immigrant lives in America should be measured based on their productivity. And I felt as though the best way for me to write against that impulse within my very limited skill set as a storyteller was to, uh, you know, really honor the creative aspirations and the labor of individual immigrants who worked in food. And so that is how this book came to be in 2018.
Where does food and writing meet? Where does the, where do the creativity of those two art forms meet, in your opinion? Yeah, that's something I was thinking about a lot. Uh, I mean, over the past five years, especially because um, you know, to preface this answer, I want to say that I actually grew up wanting to be a film critic, you know, and a lot of my writing is not just about food. And my second book uh, is going to be about film primarily. So I kind of came to food writing with that sort of generalist sensibility. Those first few months as a food writer back in 2016 when I was 24, I mean, it was just so much of me kind of excavating whatever food stories lived inside me, right? Because I was really asking myself, like, okay, what does food mean to me? What did it mean to me growing up? What kinds of charge do uh, all these memories carry for me? Because that isn't something that I necessarily uh, had thought about uh, with any sort of rigor prior to that point. And I realized that, you know, the food that my mother made me growing up, for example, the Bengali food that my mother made me shaped who I am and, you know, my palate certainly. And when I taste her food now, you know, I taste uh, so many of those memories from my childhood that are otherwise quite distanced from me. I think that food writing uh, opens up so many opportunities to tell larger human stories. And that's something that I wanted to honor with this book. So your mother cooked? Did your father cook? Not especially, you know, uh, he had some specialties, uh, you know, like uh, his egg curry, for example, or what uh, in Bengali we call dimardana, you know, he, he made that, like, I would say, once every few months, and that was a sort of special occasion food, right? But otherwise, it was my mother doing all the cooking, and... You know, that's the kind of labor that I took, I and so many others in my household took for granted growing up, you know, uh, because she was not only the breadwinner of the family, she was also doing all of the labor at home, like feeding this entire clan. And I think that she had a sort of humility about her cooking. You know, she saw it as a performance of duty. And as a result, I, I did too, you know, and it wasn't until I became a food writer that I understood that she cooked with a lot of love and artistry and, you know, those dishes that she might find very commonplace and simple or whatever were in fact works of art in their own right. This labor she put in that you talked about, which is a beautiful way to think of even my own mother who did, the lab who did that labor, you know, my father mm -hmm. did not do that labor. Is that why Tastemakers focuses on women and immigrant women specifically? Is it sort of an ode to that labor? Yeah, it absolutely is. You know, I'm one of those guys who's really close to his mom, you know. Uh, she's she's my best friend, um, you know, and then I'm very fortunate to have uh, such a close relationship to her. Uh, I saw her struggle. I saw her suffer in so many ways and so many arenas, you know, growing up. And I hope that when she reads this book, uh, she sees at least some aspects of her own experience as an immigrant woman kind of reflected in each of these stories. I would say more broadly, you know, I've always been attracted to telling the stories of women, and I think that that might strike some people as odd because they would look at me and be like, he's a dude or whatever, right? Like, why is he, you know, telling these stories? But as a queer person, uh, I, like a lot of other queer folks, have a complicated relationship to gender expression that my appearance might not necessarily reflect. And so when I came to the food world, spending time with some of the stories of uh, the women in this book, you know, I found aspects of their struggle that I could identify with more easily than uh, those of a lot of men um, whom I read about. There are seven women in your book, plus Julia Child. We aren't going to have time to chat about them all. I want to chat about a couple. But before that, 
how these seven? How did you source them? How did you? Oh, yeah. That was quite a process. So uh, I will say the seven women who were in my book proposal that, uh, you know, I sent out and sold back in late 2018, like I was talking about earlier, are not the same seven women who ended up in this book. Oh, wow. All seven are different. Not all seven, a few of them. Um, So to explain a bit, you know, in terms of how I found those initial seven women who were in the proposal, so... What I did primarily was I searched two uh, terms. (laughs) I literally just Googled these two things. The first was the Julia Child of, and the (laughs) second was Craig Claymore and called her. So (laughs) real quick to explain both of those. So the Julia Child of, so so many women throughout American culinary history and global culinary history have been called the Julia Childs of their respective countries of origin or regions from which they came. And You know, I'm sure that that kind of terminology had its place, uh, you know, in a certain era of uh, American food writing. Yet today, it kind of seems patronizing to say that someone was the Julia Child of Jamaica when, in fact, she can stand on her own. But, you know, it was through searching just the Julia Child of that I found so many people whom I could write about in this book. And by that same token, I also searched Craig Claymore and called her. So for listeners who aren't familiar with who Craig Claymore was, he was the food editor of the New York Times beginning in 1957. And, you know, he had that post until, I believe, the mid-1980s. And during his time at the New York Times, he, you know, used that position to really champion a lot of immigrant female voices just through profiling them in articles that were a few hundred words long in the New York Times. He would catapult these once uh, publicly anonymous figures to a degree of fame and, you know, open up access to capital and opportunity in the form of helping them get cookbook deals, for example. So uh, I searched that term to kind of surface some names who may have been celebrities in their times while not necessarily having the longevity and name recognition of someone like Julia Child, uh, you know, has today. You're focusing on women of another generation. Is there a part of you that looks to Craig Claiborne and says, oh, maybe I can do this of women chefs of a now generation and I can put them on blast. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, uh, I don't know if I feel comfortable possessing that sort of uh, power and clout and influence, you know what I mean? Because I know how difficult it is to get noticed by certain people, the right people, you know, those gatekeepers like Craig Claiborne. So I would never want to become part of that problem because for all the talents whom someone like Craig Claiborne will recognize. There are so many others who deserve that sort of recognition that kind of fall by the wayside. Like, uh, it would be cool if I could be like one of, I don't know, 30 Craig Claibornes in you know, today's food writing world. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it feels uh, kind of, it's a big burden to carry, I guess. I hear what Mayuk's saying, but also his book is definitely a start to putting some amazing women on blast. A start. We need more, for sure. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mayuk tells me about some of the women he profiled and how they each handled that unique tightrope I think many immigrants walk. How much to assimilate to your new country versus staying true to where you come from. We're back with the author of Tastemakers, Seven Immigrant Women Who Revolutionized Food in America, Mayuk Sen. 
Each gorgeously written chapter of Mayuk's book tells the story of a different woman from a different country. He says each story was constructed with the help of interviews, memoirs, press coverage, and, of course, by consulting the beautiful cookbooks these women created. But some of the women were alive and writing way back in the early 1900s, with less material and living relatives to consult. Even though it was challenging to draw a detailed picture of their experience, Mayuk still felt it was important to draw out these stories. At least he'd be helping to give these women the credit they might not have had in their own time. One woman like this is the subject of Mayuk's first chapter. Chao Yang Bu Wei, she's one of the women in your book. Can you tell us a little about who she is and what is her story? Chao Yang Bu Wei was the author of a 1945 cookbook called How to Cook and Eat in Chinese. And it is arguably the first systematically thorough Chinese cookbook published in America in the English language. It introduced terms like stir-fry into the American vernacular, ones that, you know, we still swear by today, right? Uh, Yet her story fascinated me because she was someone who was a doctor by training who kind of fell into the food world in a similar-ish way to the way that I kind of just, like, found myself, you know, uh, in the food world. And she embarked upon this kind of cookbook project, but her comfort with the English language as someone who had grown up in China was so low that she wrote the first draft of this book and then uh, two family members of hers, uh, one of her daughters, along with her husband, the famed linguist Chao Yuanren, you know, they both kind of just looked at that draft and were just like, no, you know, we need to change the language completely. And essentially what happened was over the course of many drafts, her voice was sort of uh, drowned out from that book. And instead, it became this weird sort of document where you could see all this familial tension, um, you know, right on the page. And you could see this man, her husband in particular, being like, your English is not good. You know, I'm going to make it better, that kind of thing. So one of the first sentences in that cookbook is, I'm ashamed to have written this book. And that immediately, when I saw that, I was like, damn, what? a fascinating character, you know, to be kind of written into history for this book that you're saying you don't want your name on. That already made her such a compelling character to me. That's primarily why I wanted to write about her. But then I realized that, you know, there is a larger story to tell. She was someone who really pioneered so much about the way that home cooks in America think about Chinese food today. Uh, And she try to show a lot of Americans that Chinese cooking itself has so much diversity that restaurant food might not necessarily reflect. Yet she was followed by so many other authors of Chinese origin who kind of walked that same path that she forged. And because of their popularity, her name sort of, uh, you know, fell from uh, the public memory, so to speak. Uh, She didn't even get a New York Times obituary Uh, when she died in the early 1980s, despite her immense contributions to the culture at large. And I just felt as though her story and seeing the ways in which American memories treated it, you know, reveals so much about who gets remembered and why. I'm ashamed to have written this. And this idea of language makes me think Celia Cruz, when she was performing the great, like, Salsero, when she would perform in the States, she would say, "Uh, excuse me, my English is not very good looking. (laughs) Um, you know this idea that we have to apologize even more influential that she sort of writes this book that changes the culture when she's apologizing for being a part of the culture Uh, one review at the time called Chinese and Japanese food too remote to be accessible is it because she made it accessible that it was a success 
you read her book closely and you do see some instances in which uh, it seems that she was really resistant to this idea of assimilating into this larger, wider American fabric. You know, she says, for example, uh, her mother tongue is Chinese and, you know, she identifies as a Chinese person first and foremost. But there are other aspects of the cookbook that uh, do reveal that she was very much content with uh, kind of catering to this wider audience, you know, and uh, making Chinese food accessible, as you say. You know, she offered ingredient substitutions like a peanut butter instead of sesame jam because that was to refusing to kind of compromise her Chinese identity is one that makes her such a rich character. In reading so many cookbooks, did you come to have an understanding that a good cookbook is so much more than just good recipes? Like it's, it, it actually is a way that the author gives a part of their spirit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I would say that, you know, the cookbooks that uh, I treasure the most, especially the ones that I was reading as I was researching this book, are the ones that go far beyond just kind of offering great recipes or ones that make someone like me, who's a very timid home cook, want to get into the kitchen, right? I love cookbooks that have memoiristic passages or autobiographical passages that can really tell readers that these recipes, they come from a larger tradition that goes beyond just the self. Something about this makes me think of my grandmother. When she passed, I got a cookbook of hers I never knew she had. It was this, like, vegan Buddhist cookbook. Um, Oh, wow. And I was so sad that I never knew she had that. Or, like, she had so many things underlined. Like, she'd cooked so much of it. And she had things circled. And it was such a... It seemed like at a moment in her life, it was a big part of her life. And as a person who was a vegan for a long time and, you know, practicing Buddhist, I was like, wow, we shared something through this cookbook, but we never even knew it. That is wild. Did you cook anything from it? I'm curious. It's still sitting at home. I actually have it. Maybe I need to do that tonight. Maybe this is like, maybe this is my call. Exactly. Because I know exactly where it is. Uh, one more woman I would like to talk about is uh, Najmiai Botmanglish. She's an Iranian woman. Can you tell me a little bit about her? Absolutely. So Najmiai Botmanglish uh, is someone who was born in Iran, and she left Iran around the time of the uh, Iranian Revolution in 1979. You know, the country had become a place that she could no longer really recognize or relate to. So she spent a few years uh, in France in a village called Bons as a refugee. Uh, You know, she had a few kids with her husband, Mohammed, who's also from Iran, And uh, she decided that, you know what, this (laughs) French village is not the best place for me to raise two uh, brown kids, as she put it. And so she instead moved with her family to Washington, D.C. in the early 1980s. And that was around the time that, you know, the Iran hostage crisis still kind of loomed large in American uh, cultural memory, and as did the uh, Iranian revolution. And so... When she came to America, she wanted to write an English-language cookbook all about Iranian food. And she had actually done something similar to that back in France, and she had no trouble really selling it. Yet, when she came to America during that kind of fraught political time, 
Uh, she sent out all these query letters to major publishers being like, hey, want my Iranian cookbook? You know, I'm no slouch. I've written a cookbook before, right? And she got either uh, rejection or just silence from these publishers. And the sort of message there was that, you know, these publishers, to them, like publishing an Iranian cookbook in that time was just anathema to them. Like they could not take that sort of financial risk because they would get so much backlash, maybe. And instead of being super discouraged, what Najmeh decided to do is something very inspiring to me, is that she decided, you know what? I'm going to write this book anyway. So I, along with my husband, Mohammed, we're going to start our own publishing house, and we are just going to publish this English-language Iranian cookbook. And they made it happen. And in the mid-1980s, this book, Food of Life, came out. And it today, I think, is highly regarded by so many home cooks in America as the cookbook on Iranian food. And sh- what is so uh, kind of upsetting but also invigorating about her story is the fact that she basically had to circumvent this entire broken system, you know, to make her voice heard and to get her food to this larger audience. And she made it happen. Tis the story of brown people. Sometimes we can't wait for a publishing deal. Exactly. (laughs) Sometimes we just gotta, we just have to speak it into existence and make it happen. Uh, The full title of her cookbook, I love, Food of Life, a book of ancient Persian and modern Iranian cooking and ceremonies. I just, uh, yeah, Food of Life, which is beautiful. Can you tell me the difference a little bit about Persia and Iran? Yeah, totally. So, you know, when one would say Persia back in the 1980s, uh, a lot of people might think of this, you know, great civilization or whatever that has so much knowledge and culture versus when, uh, you know, you were to say Iran back in the 1980s. That might dredge up some unsavory images, you know, of uh, political turmoil uh, that the country had become known for in the 1980s, certainly after the Iranian Revolution. Uh, And so what Najmeh decided she wanted to do was kind of weave together the past and present and really tell this larger history of this country's varying food ways, uh, you know, in this book while also reflecting the realities, the present-day realities that she knew as someone who'd grown up in Iran and spent so much of her life there up until the late 1970s. And so that's why she decided, you know what, we are going to include both. You know, it is ancient Persian, it's also modern Iranian. You know, we're going to own both aspects of this reality. And, you know, if that means that we sell fewer books, so be it. What I find also really inspiring about her story, uh, something I didn't mention earlier, is that she wrote this as a love letter to her sons. She had this fear that they would never set foot in Iran ever and never kind of taste uh, its culinary glories that were so familiar to her. And so she was writing this book for them and other children of the Iranian diaspora who would not be able to experience that. And it just so happened that, you know, over time, this book reached an audience much wider than the Iranian diaspora, and it took off with people like myself and, you know, white folks and all other Americans. Najmia is different from Bouwey in the fact that she specifically said, I'm writing for an Iranian audience. Uh, People like her who were exiled from their homeland. And all of the women you profile deal with some sort of choice they have to make, which is like assimilate, and fit in, right? Hit the white tongue, the popular right. tongue, <laughs> yeah. um, or rebuke it and force America to see their culture, their food, their ceremonies. Was that a theme that happened naturally? Did you were you aiming for that? 
Yeah, no, it's definitely not something that I expected to touch upon uh, as explicitly as I ended up doing, you know, because one of the big questions I had when I first started writing this is like, okay, how do all these stories fit together? You know, uh, I think I thought back to what my friend told me back in 2017 when he first suggested I write this book. He was all just like, tell a larger story. And I'm like, okay, what larger story do I have to tell? You know, like, yeah, these are seven individual portraits. What weaves them together aside from this shared experience of being uh, an immigrant and a woman, right? Uh, and then I realized that choice is what kind of bound each of these stories and the different paths that each woman took. Some of these women did assimilate, and they were totally content to have their food reflect the fact that they saw themselves as American. And I knew that it was my job as someone who's writing this in the 21st century with my politics, which are, you know, left, <laughs> uh, to not judge any of these women for the choices that they made. It was my job to just empathize with each woman and the kind of station, you know, they had in life. Yeah, I always think about a line from a director I worked with, which was, no victims, no perpetrators, right? We have to, we do the best we can with what we have. And sometimes getting your culture into another culture, even if you had to take some shots, is what you had to do. Or, you know, you don't accept shit from nobody, but like, there's no, there's no one right way. And I'm sure that people could look back on my little career in food writing and be like, oh, you know, he he sold out and he was writing for that wide audience and stuff like that. And it's like, I have my reasons and so do these women. And I got to uncover those reasons, you know, as I write. Outside of Najmia's book, but attached to her title, Cooking and Ceremonies, what is the ceremony of, of cooking for you? Like, have you come to have a deeper ceremonial relationship to food and or culture, and or cooking, and or the labor of cooking, as you put it, with your mother earlier? Oh, yeah. I certainly, uh, you know, I treat my mother's food with ceremonial respect. She still lives in Jersey, so she's just, uh, you know, a train ride away from me. And as a result, you know, whenever I do go to visit her, whenever I eat her food, I make sure to tell her how great it is and to, you know, for her to understand how great it is because she still does have this sort of humility surrounding her own cooking and her own food. She sees it as fundamentally unspectacular because she's been just going mm -hmm. through these motions for uh, so many years, so many decades. I think that food also now uh, has a special kind of resonance for uh, my mother and myself because my father died uh, five years ago now. Before, you know, eating these meals uh, was the sort of shared ritual that the three of us had. And, you know, in his absence, I think that, I'd like to think at least that, you know, when my mother and I eat together, we sort of are remembering him and, you know, his presence at that table too in some way. The ceremony of, of me making my grandmother's food tonight from the cookbook, you know. You got to do it. Yeah, can, I'm excited. We, we can bring back spirits, all right? We can exactly. sit with him. Uh, you want your readers to consider their place in America after reading the book. And what have you learned about your place in this country after writing it? I, in writing this book, started to look back on just so many of the uh, hardships that I faced and the struggles that I had in trying to make my voice heard. And I understood that there's a way to navigate this industry while, uh, you know, keeping your soul and your creative self intact. And each of these seven women did just that. And that is what I find so inspiring about telling these stories. 
It taught me a lot about resilience in the face of hardship, which I worry sounds really trite, you know, but it is something that I had to remind myself of, you know, because uh, the challenges will not end as my life and career progress, so. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you so much for having me. I love this conversation. I appreciate it a ton. We appreciate you. Speaking of careers, y'all, Mayu's got an amazing one ahead of him still. He is now working on his second book, a profile of Merle Oberon, the only woman of Asian heritage to be nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress. Now, this book is right up my alley because guess what? For her entire career, Merle Oberon passed as a white woman, kind of like my guy Ruby. Crazy, right? And if you want to hear more about that or any of Mayuk's other work, check out mayuksen.com. That's M-A-Y-U-K-H-S-E-N.com. Next time on Brown Enough, we're talking to the hilarious comedian Zarna Garg. I think in our cultures, women being loud and laughing is kind of shunned upon. And if you think of what the women will joke about, they're going to joke about the men. Brown Enough is a production of Stitcher. It's created and hosted by me, Christopher Rivas, and I'm also an executive producer. Our team includes producer Manolo Morales, senior producer Abigail Keel, technical director Casey Holford, production assistant Gabrielle Gladney, and executive producer Camille Stanley. Original music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Kevin Tidmarsh. Workhouse Media is a contributing producer to this podcast. Carlos E. Hernandez of Ikigai Management is also an executive producer of Brown Enough. And don't forget to subscribe, y'all, or follow Brown Enough so you never miss an episode. And if you got a minute, leave us a review. A nice one. It goes a long way. Thanks. Witness Docs from Stitcher.